BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. This is part two of Think Like a Nobel Prize winner. Both part one and part two are available today. You can download both of them. In this one, we talk a little bit more about what it means to be as curious as a Nobel Prize winner. How do they get that curious? How can we be that curious? How can I be that curious? Enjoy. Why talk to the Allied Moving Company guy and make an and and I was specifically talking to him because I was making not only a life decision but a an investment decision because of it. And I imagine part of being curious is finding a tool set that gives you an unfair advantage. So for instance, mm. most people make in investment decisions based on the same ideas that are in all the books that are in the newspapers and so on. And, but how many people will make a real estate decision by looking at where a moving company driver says he's suddenly seen a huge amount of people moving from this city to this city, you know, what, and in one city, they make a lot more than the people in the other city. So, you know, prices are going to then go up. And I imagine for physicists, they're not just all looking at the same and probably every one of these Nobel prize winners has figured out kind of a toolkit they can use that gives them an unfair advantage. And I was, I was curious if you found that to be true. Yeah, I, I, I definitely did. And, you know, I think the, some of the commonality that I observed is directly related to that. Um, and, and their issue and their kind of lack of ego. I, I wonder sometimes, again, if it's causative or it's part of their DNA or what have you, that you know, the types of people that can listen to you, they're critics. Like, it's one thing to be heckled at a comedy store as, you know, you don't have any experience with that. But, uh, but you know, if you're, if you're heckled at, you know, Stand Up New York, it's, it's, it's different. Like, listening to your critics, like, the, you know, I get all these comments on my YouTube channel. You know, 99% are positive. Some are like, you know, what the hell are you doing? You're a fraud for, like, you know, big physics or, or like, or they'll just make up stuff like, well, how could you have on this guy? Um, and, and just, like, make it up and call them names and ad hominem attack and then just leave. And I'm like, why am I, like, even thinking about these people? Um, it's it's just totally pointless. And and I wish I could get it. But we also like the accolades. So how do, how do they yeah. balance the, the kind of the benefits of listening to your critics, which is another form of ignoring, like, the sunk cost. The, the guy's now telling you or gal's now telling you, you're wrong. Like this isn't the way to look for the cosmic microwave background signal. And and you guys got it all wrong. You should listen to us. Maybe they're crackpots or maybe they're actually very astute, but well, they're certainly in competition with you. Cause as you said, 
there's fixed resources. There's only so many students that you can hire. There's only so many publications. You have to go through peer review and get... Um, so all these hurdles and obstacles are in the way in these academic hunger games, as I call it. And yet, sometimes if you don't listen to them, you know, it's, 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 it, is, it, is, it is to your detriment. I always say science is an infinite game. In other words, like nobody's going to win science. Like, uh, yeah, I can't win science. You can't win science. So we're not in a zero-sum competition. But it's comprised of an infinite number of zero-sum games, <laughs> like like Nobel Prizes and tenure and funding and graduate students and papers published, et cetera, et cetera. So it's unusual to have like sometimes you have to, you know, listen to your critic, which who is a competitor to you for resources, et cetera, in the zero-sum stage of the infinite game. And sometimes you have to listen to them, you know, uh, because they actually have the right solution to at least making progress against the infinite amount of ignorance that we human beings will always have, no matter how much we learn. It's a blessing, actually, to have critics because, yeah. a, first off, the criti if the critics are wrong, you've inspired some kind of visceral feeling in them that even though they're wrong, they feel the need to criticize you, whether it's positive, constructive criticism or destructive criticism. Second, and I find this to often be true, they're probably right in their criticism. <laughs> like not all critic, not all criticism is 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 wrong. Even if right. even if it's destructive, by the way. People say, oh, it should be always constructive. Sometimes you have to no. kind of translate destructive criticism into something useful because they might be right. And and the ability to use that as a tool, I think, is another component of uh of of you know the, the DNA of, of curiosity because yeah because like like for instance I'll just I'm not comparing myself to physicists but like when I when I wrote the article in New York City's Dead Forever I had uh, a lot of critics and by the way I thought most of these critics were wrong but then I had to ask mm -hmm. myself why am I getting so much criticism this is more criticism than I've gotten for any other article ever and right. why is this happening. And that in itself became a useful exercise to understand what was going on in my writing that I didn't do other times or what were, what were, what made this article go viral? Why did people, whether they were correct or incorrect, why were there critics at all? And right. that became just thinking in that way, you always have to go like, it seems like going meta and asking mm -hmm. kind of abstract questions about what's happening in general, not fighting the mm -hmm. critics, but asking why are there critics? Like, why does this mm -hmm. situation exist as opposed to resolving the situation? So, so it's like the second second derivative of the situation. Yeah, that's right. And, and we had to throw in some equations. And I think that's an no, important that um, DNA component of curiosity as well. Well, one of the things that just keeps resonating, again, a book about physics Nobel Prize winners, if you just picked it up, would you think that they mastered some of the skills that you talk about and skip the line and choose yourself, namely the soft skills, persuasion? Absolutely. Yeah, I, you would. But I think it was very surprising to, to people when I talked about, it. like, why do I want to listen to a bunch of nerds? And, and why physicists, by the way? I, like, why not, as you said, I mean, look, if you win the Nobel Prize in chemistry, like Jennifer Doudna, or, uh, you know, like, are you less, you know, kind of savvy or less physically knowledgeable than somebody who discovered uh, the lighthouse or invented the lighthouse? Which, by the way, when, when you have imposter syndrome over Einstein, do you have, like, kind of arrogance about Gustav Dahlen, who won the 19... 08 Nobel Prize instead Absolutely. of Albert he Einstein. <laughs> yeah, he was a freaking schmuck. I mean, yeah, probably everything guy. he's done has been disproven by now anyway. Well, by the way, just it's, just, it's just like T.S. Eliot's quote. You said, um, all it does is buy... Uh, a ticket to your funeral. Yeah, like, <laughs> I guess more people go to your funeral if you have a Nobel Prize at this point. So, you know, there's a story, Groucho Marx, T.S. Eliot was obsessed with Groucho Marx. 
and um, they met once or twice, I think. And um, Groucho yeah. Marx went to T.S. Eliot's funeral, and mm -hmm. he comes back to L.A. and all his friends are, you know, like you know George Burns. They're all these, you know, older Jewish comedians and comics right. and and stuff like that. They're all they all said to Groucho Marx, "How how could you go to T.S. Eliot's funeral? He hated Jews. He was a he was a bad guy. He hated right. Jews and everything." And Groucho Marx said, that's okay. There's a lot of Jews I don't like also. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. And like uh, one of the Simpsons again, you know, Homer Simpson says to Bart, you know, like, or says to somebody like one of his friends, Carl or something, he's like, you know, I'll be there for your funeral, man. And then Carl says to him, I'll be there for yours too. And it's like, no, no, it's not going to happen. Like you can't both be at each other's funeral. Uh, it's not going to, unless you die in the same day. <laughs> that's but, funny. Uh, By the no, way, this it, notion it of took me a few seconds to get that one. So that that's how that's fifty. Uh, I can't tell if it's like turning fifty or COVID or whatever. <laughs> but um, but the but the the point you know I think is is a very crucial one that these guys have have skills that transcend. I mean, some of them, not all of them, but but most of them have these skills that it isn't surprising. Although at, to the layperson, it might seem surprising. But physicists have this very diverse curiosity that we have to you know often science all the sciences are depicted as kind of a tree. And the tree has a trunk, a very strong, solid trunk that's physics, because from physics, you can derive all the laws of, it said, chemistry. And then from chemistry, you can get the laws of biology. From biology, you can get the laws of evolution, then cognition, and then sociology. And eventually, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, Ghanaian poetry in the 16th century. You know, so, but it all starts with physics. But what is physics? The tree planted in, in math and philosophy, et cetera, and logic. And so I think that these, you know, it shouldn't be so surprising, but because it kind of is the connecting tissue, literally between this like ethereal world, which has, no, as I said in the past, like you can't hand me a triangle. Like triangles only exist in our minds and the concept of a triangle only, there's no such thing as, as three zero dimensional points that you can hand to me or how much does, how much does, you know, a, a, an, an, um, you know, a point weigh? it's meaningless, right? So it's not physically embodied. But on the other hand, they also have to be very practical and bridge between sociology. Like this book is as much about, you know, kind of human nature as, again, like I don't choose how Amazon puts this in categories. One category, it was number one new release and is science for kids, which huh. I was tickled by having kids. But the other one was in like, is in self-help success. And I was like, if you told me I'd write a self-help book along with such luminaries as 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 James Altucher, I would have said you're great. Like ten, but now I realize that like to whatever degree I've had success, um, is is you know because I think I do care about the people I'm talking to. I do. I am passionately curious about uh, individual uh, life and humanity as a whole and why we make certain. So it's a, it's a book about humanity and it is a self-help guide. Uh, you know, I'm coming out of the closet. I, I wrote a self-help book, James, and I'm, I'm damn proud of it. No, it's, it's, it's very valuable because again, I think seeing these people, like you're, like you say, the soft skills, seeing them talk about that and their struggles, look, they had to raise funding, uh, for projects. They had to, uh, uh convince peer review. Yeah. And, yeah. and look, and you also, sometimes it even boils down to, you have to name what you're doing. Like here, the theory of relativity, that is a cool name. <laughs> like, you know, sometimes you have to be creative about how you're the, the entire presentation and branding of what you're doing, because you're also trying to show people this is important. You're showing your students, you're showing, um, your peers, you're showing, uh, people yep. like the Nobel prize committee, you're showing the, the public. So you can maybe write a book or, or, or mm -hmm. get in the news or, or you have, you have to be able to 
And that's a, a salesman's job. And calling yes. it a salesman sounds cheap because you think of death of a salesman or whatever, but that's really what it is. It's a form of sales. It's persuasion. And I think you've you've talked a lot about this on on your show. And I think it's incredible. And even being a stand-up comic, right? You're you're there are all these skills you said to me when you said, you know, on many occasions, not just to me, but you said, you know, there's no one skill stand-up comic. Right. Well, there's no one skill physics. It's a comprised of meta skills and pseudo skills. And and yeah, we have this negative connotation with someone that can be persuasive as kind of like um, you know, like oily, you know, whatever, snake oil salesman. And we also have these negative connotations like Barry Barish writes in the forward to think like a Nobel Prize winner. He's like, curiosity killed the cat. Like, like if you ask somebody like a kid, they'll think like curiosity, is that negative? And by the way, you know, scientists are prized for their childlike behaviors in a lot of ways. You know, we, we are very curious. We are very imaginative. We are very, um, you know, kind of productive in a certain playful sense. We are very inquisitive and, and we, you know, have this unbridled enthusiasm. And I say, yes, it's true. We also have all the negative traits of kids too. There's no such thing as like a single edged sword. I mean, that'd be great to make, but like, we're jealous. We're petty. We don't like other people's success. We have schadenfreude when they fail. We want them, you know, and so we have all these things because again, it's comprised of fixed games in the context of an infinite game. And very few people I think are, have that kind of awareness because look on a daily basis, um, there's not a lot of room for introspection. Like I don't sit there thinking about, you know, the the origin of the universe and the philosophical interpretation as much as I would like to. And I probably do it more than almost anybody I know because, you know, some would say I've got too much time on my hands. But the other uh, the other perspective is like, we only have so much time until we die. Like we only have a finite amount of time. And these all these laureates are going to die someday. I'm going to die. You're going to, you know, uh, unless my, my one of my kids is working on the never dying pill. Hey, talk about branding. Isn't that, isn't that good branding for the Nobel Prize in Chemistry and Biology? It could happen soon. Who knows? <laughs> I, <laughs> right. I think some there are some Nobel Prizes probably that have been, well, certainly the CRISPR is an, an anti-aging tool. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's incredibly exciting. CRISPR, Ivermectin. by the way, great branding for a tool that modifies DNA. <laughs> I know. I was like, yeah, like, how would you like your genes, CRISPR? Yeah. <laughs> Like that to be crisper, please. Uh, so you know, my uh, my son also has another idea that the the electron should have been named instead because the positron, which is the antiparticle of the electron, as you know, uh, the electron is Greek for amber, which is like who the hell cares about that? But he said, why don't they call the electron the negatron? Oh yeah, I, like I was like, that. that's actually a much better name, yeah. right? Yeah. So like this kid could be onto something. Anyway, that's so, my son. So 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 in addition to these soft skills, how do the critical question, I guess, really is ultimately how do they discover something that nobody else has ever discovered before? And by the way, this is not important just in physics. Again, you could do in any field, like in comedy, you're, you really can't say a joke that's been said before, then you're stealing a joke or, or, or you're right. just repeating yourself. You have to right. constantly come up with something that nobody has ever said, or you have to say something in a unique way that it's never been said that way before to really be great. And it's the same thing. And it's different than... Go ahead. It's even harder, James, right? Because because in like art, let's say there's Jackson Pollock or there's, you know, uh, Dave Chappelle or, or, you know, whoever, James Altucher, right? There's no right or wrong answer in arts, right? It's subjective. It's purely subjective. Like my toddler can make a painting as good as a Pollock as, and actually, you know, she has. But then I think about, you know, somebody else like would pay $100 million for that, right? Or digital art now, like with NFTs, which is really fascinating and, uh, and so forth. Like literally anybody can do it. You can actually take a screen grab and make it into an NFT if you want. Um, so, so the point being, 
there's no grade. But in physics, there is an ultimate grader, and it's Mother Nature. Right. That, that, you know, she will tell you if you're right or wrong, and she will she will deny and crush your most basic hopes, which is why to see things like in sociology of science, things like string theory or inflation or other things persist for decades, even without experimental verification or validation, which used to be the sine qua non, you know, the essential essence of the scientific method, which I also have a chapter about in the book, just so people can look and, and think about, well, what is, how can I apply the scientific method as a car salesman in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or wherever Tulsa is? Um, that, that being the case, um, you know, so I think that there is no one way, but there is, a, like, there's no one path, but there's one destination. So it's easier in some ways and it's harder in other ways because you can't like back, work backwards from the punchline usually and like, oh, I know the audience is going to laugh. Like that's my grade, right? As a stand-up comedian, if the audience doesn't laugh, like it could be funny to you, but who cares, right? So you want to get a reaction that's that's in comport with where your expectations are. You're working backwards from that. If you knew this would make the the, the audience laugh, like I have a punchline. I, I can't say it on the, on the air because it's too dirty. I'll say it to you when we get off the phone. I think I've solved – a, ma a major problem in stand-up comedy, but I'll tell you later. Um, so uh, <laughs> The unifying so, theory you know, of stand-up comedy and yeah, improv. Exactly. That's right. I never came up with a theory of everything in physics, but so I had to go to comedy. But there's no right answer in, in the arts. Uh, so it's subjective. But in physics and science in general, there is. So that means that you, you, you know where you're going to end up if you're right, so, working on so, a problem. So, Brian, that's what I'm saying. So how – like for you, how would you even begin – like okay, uh, uh, you, so you worked on bicep one, bicep two. You, your your goal was to actually build a de device, a special telescope that could detect, you know, odd differences in the way gravitational waves were coming out of the cosmic background radiation, and then and you would use this to prove inflation. So you saw you, you stood on the shoulders of giants, or you looked over little people, or whatever you want to say, and you 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 know you know that there's gravitational waves. You know that they must have been there since creation you know that cosmic background radiation doesn't have any light through and and one of your nobel prize winners does allow for the has created the mechanisms for detecting gravitational waves so what but now you have to make some leap what was the leap you made and how do you think you made it yeah i think in that case there there comes along again with a with a double-edged sword you know blessing and a curse which is that you have um you have this kind of destination in sight, but you're also trying to get there. So there's get there-itis and there's, you know, sunk cost bias, but there's also confirmation bias that like when you see things that comport with the thing you're trying to pursue, you're going to be more likely to accept those and more likely to exclude disconfirming signs that you might be wrong. Like dust could have been responsible for the signal that you were seeking. Um, and so you'll go to great lengths to kind of accentuate the pathways that conform to the expected result. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income 
by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of en- entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm thirty five. 
you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. What struck your curiosity in the first place to why did nobody else ever in history do what you were proposing to do? Like, how did you become the first one to, to do this? Now, part of it is because the state of technology evolves. And so now you're allowed to do this, but what, where did your curiosity come from that allowed you to discover something new? Again, it's easy to solve old equations, but you're trying to solve a new problem that you've discovered or that you thought about. So how did you, how did you come with that initial insight? So my uh, context, you know, I think it had a bunch to do with um, my own, again, maybe grandiose desire to understand, you know, the biggest possible mysteries in the, in, in, you know, the human mind is capable of comprehending while I still had that, you know, product of, of knowledge rising up and forgetting falling down. And it happened to coincide with a, with a period of great technological advances and also great you know, questions. I always say, you know, a great question is one that doesn't, you know, or a great answer, you know, is not one that answers all the questions. It may inspire new questions. And at that time, there were, there were um, kind of results that were discovered in particular by my late uh, great, you know, postdoctoral mentor, Andrew Lang, who tragically committed suicide, as I described in losing the Nobel Prize, um, and uh, grappling with that. But also, you know, he kind of provided this inspiration that well, he discovered a particular p pattern in this radiation. Nobody knew how that pattern got established in the initial conditions of the early universe. And so I said, well, he solved this great paradox describing how the universe looks today, but is there a reason why the universe looks this the way that it does? And there were theorists that had conjectured that, yes, this mechanism called inflation would produce gravitational waves, but none of them really kind of made the connection that now we can do it and we don't need this enormous telescope that costs billions of dollars. You could do it on the cheap for a few million dollars, which is what we attempted to do. And for a while, we're successfully perceived to have done so. So, um, so, so, you know, so your succeeded. insight was basically that, okay, uh, I want to do this. I want to understand, was there a big bang? Was the universe created as, I mean, again, I've talked about this before on the show. I'm not embarrassed by it, but to say that I wanted a, I wanted to win a Nobel prize to outdo my scientific father and do one him better. Just like, uh, you know, kids want to win the super bowl. The, their, their parents are, you know, great football players or whatever. Um, so that was one motivation. But the other one was I wanted to basically falsify you know, or approve the description in Genesis one one. You know that there was a creation of the universe. Okay, and and, and there's a there's a problem, which is that, you know, telescopes and basically any visual instrument depends on light. 
but light was not getting through the cosmic background radiation. The cosmic background radiation was created 300,000 years after the creation of the universe or after the universe, the big bang happened or yeah. whatever. So there's a problem mm -hmm. that the problem is yeah. there's no physical way to use a, a normal device, like a telescope to see what happened before the cosmic background radiation. And so your insight standing on the shoulders of giants was that, Hey, not only can perhaps gravitational waves get through the cosmic background radiation, but here's how I could build a device that detects those so far away. That's right. And, and looking back, you know, through again, the lens of history, I do see a commonality and might be the only one uh, with these laureates is that they were all inspired by someone. I call it like a father figure, you know, or mentor or whatever, in the book, um, you know, some of them might've been women, I don't know, but, but they talk about, and quite literally, they talk about their fathers in many cases. Um, and sometimes it's bittersweet because they win it so late in life. Most of them, not Adam Reese, who's my age. Uh, he won it and his father inspired him to get it. He went it when he was 41. So yeah. He was the youngest, one of the youngest laureates in, in history. He's still, uh, he's a good friend. I talked to him this morning, you know, send him a copy of the new book. Um, you know, he's, he's convinced I'm stalking him, uh, cause the second book that has him in it. Uh, and then uh, having you know uh, people, but older laureates like you know Barry and 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 uh, and Ray Weiss are in their late eighties or in, you know, in their eighties. They don't have their parents around to be there when they want it at in in, their, in such a late age. So a lot of them were inspired. I was inspired. You know, again, Andrew Lang was like a father figure to me, and the man who committed suicide, um, whose wife le later went on to win the one, or his ex-wife went on to win okay, the Nobel but, Prize in chemistry. But, but this is very interesting. Someone who not just inspires you, but is almost like plays a role of some sort of father figure. And by the way, it's no accident yeah, that like a, a, lot of, a lot of Nobel Prize winners throughout history have been orphans. They lost their fathers young. So maybe their first professors was the first time they experienced as an, as an adult uh, mm -hmm. that kind of fatherly presence. And you're trying to, just like you try, like you mentioned, just like you're trying to prove something to your father, it, it, you're going beyond just normal inspiration and intuition. You're trying to take something they couldn't solve or they could only, they hit a plateau yes. and you're trying to go beyond them like, like a son does. And, uh, In fact, I yeah. think that's a, uh, I think that should be respected. I wonder if that could even be, you know, cultivate, uh, a feeling of, of childhood, uh, with mm -hmm. your mentors it took to cultivate mm -hmm. that kind of curiosity. That's what got you yeah, to basically not only be curious, but have the soft skills to raise the millions of dollars required to to build your telescope in antarctica of all places so yeah and and you, i look at like the two you know most famous nobel prize winning physicists of the 20th century albert einstein and richard feynman so uh, einstein was you know inspired in many occasions to ask questions but he also didn't ask questions of his father and he actually credits you know the theory of relativity um to not asking questions as a kid but only as an adult when he had the swagger and the toolkit huh. In other words, if he had asked his dad at age, you know, seven, what happens if I travel along a light beam and look at myself in a mirror, you know, do I see anything? He said, he said his father would have just given him the answer that, you know, oh, you see yourself or you don't see yourself, thus squelching the curiosity that would then have deprived humanity, at least for some time. Because again, unlike art, physics and art are not the same. They have a lot of commonalities and I talk about them in the book, how they are similar. Um, you know, there's no one right answer in art. There's no, uh, there is a right answer in physics as judged by nature. But, um, but in art, 
if if nobody came up with the theory of relativity, if Einstein didn't come up with the theory of relativity, some other person would. In fact, you know, there are many people hot oh, on they, the trail. Yeah, there were imp- it's one of those parallel discoveries. There's there were actually were yeah. several scientists, right, working on the same thing. Yeah, but if uh, you know, if, if uh, Michelangelo didn't, you know, paint the uh, the Mona Lisa or Leonardo, who painted the Mona Lisa? Now I'm getting Da Vinci. Da Vinci. So nobody would have painted it, right? So no, nobody would have painted it. They would have painted other pictures of it, but it wouldn't have but, that mercurial, but, magical spell, right? So there, there's a benefit to art too. Just like, you know, if you don't make some joke that only you could make, nobody's ever going to make that particular joke. That's true. But like so, something like I, cubism just, I'm, or, I'm, you know, mm-hmm. impressionist art or pop art, things like this probably would Styles would've. of art, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, styles of art, sure. And uh, who knows? Now, artificial art is now coming online, right? So, but so Einstein said that he credited not asking his dad on one hand for the answer because it would have stunted his own intellectual growth. Um, and then Feynman talks about when, after he won the Nobel Prize, his dad said to him, he's very proud of him, uh, and they were very close. And he said, You know, um, uh, son, I, I always had this question I was too embarrassed to ask you, but now you won the Nobel Prize. I'm going to ask you, when an electron transitions in an atom from a high energy state to a low energy state, it emits a photon, as you showed in quantum electrodynamics, right? And he said, right, my father. And then his father said, well, was the photon like stored inside the electron, like a little battery? And Feynman said, I, I, I don't know. And he said, I never saw such a look of disappointment and depression as I did on that particular day. <laughs> like he let his dad down, even though he had a Nobel Prize. Uh, um, so I think it's, uh, it, 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 there is something to it. And of course we don't mean only men can be mentors. Let's, let's be obvious about it. Some of my sure, teachers. Sure. And, yeah, and no, it is just... uh, but some Swingali, some Obi-Wan, and it's part of the hero's journey, right? Cause you go through this abstraction where nobody knows where they're going to come out. They don't even know if an answer exists. I always say, you know, graduate school to my students, it's not like undergraduate school, but harder. You know, the tests are a little harder. There's more advanced, you know, there's more decimal places. No, no, no. You don't even know if there is an answer. Right. Like undergraduate, somebody's going to get it right, but you're not, maybe. I'm not. Again, it's, it, it, it's gonna... the difference between knowledge and discovery. So up until graduate yes. school, you're accumulating knowledge. This is, this is the basic toolkit to basically solve these problems. But then exactly. in graduate school, you've got to discover something. <laughs> You can't just have yes, more knowledge. Right. It can't just be some incremental polishing of, of some other theory or so that something fundamentally new that did not exist until you came on the planet to do it. So I think those are exciting and exhilarating aspects of being a scientist. And it kind of, you know, does take away some of the mundanity of, of yeah, a lot of it is like, you know, you asked earlier, do people still want to do this? And I'm looking at, you know, my students now saying, well, maybe I don't want to do this. So I wanted to ask you know, before my students leave and go work for Google or Apple or, you know, a lot of them are just like, I don't want your life anymore. And it's it's just so kind of bemusing in a certain sense because, you know, this is all I wanted to do and I never thought I could do it because I never thought I was good enough, whatever. I thought there's, you know, and there are people much better than I am. I get to work with them every day. But, but to have, you know, kind of this notion that here I am, like, am I depressed because I didn't win the Nobel Prize? No, and not at all. And and if I did win the Nobel Prize, what would how would things change? And I think, well, you wouldn't guys, be agreeing to go the, on the James Altucher Show podcast, that's for sure. You mean inviting myself to come on the James Altucher? <laughs> no, you have an uh, so, open invitation, so. Uh, uh, thank you. Yeah, no, it means a lot to me. This is like one of my, uh, so I've, I've started like to, to maximize my happiness. You know, one of the things that, that respected happiness consultants that you've had on your show recommend is like, write down like things that you're looking forward to every day. And so like, this is my highlight of the week yeah, so, uh, is talking with you. Yeah, it's so much we fun. Always, we always look forward to it here. And I want to, I, you know, yeah. this, this idea that these people 
these physicists who are at the highest level discovered something new and had this very deep curiosity. I think it is a hard thing to kind of decode the DNA of this, but I wrote down some other quotes from, from your book. Uh, one yeah. was diversify your pursuits, which is, you know, referred to in a lot of different books, but I think, you know, it's the idea that yes, you might be making discoveries about black holes, but it doesn't mean you can't be obsessed with drawing and maybe inspiration and ideas you get from understanding the nuances of another field will give you curiosity and specific nuances that no one ever has had before in physics. So I like that diversify your pursuits. Uh, we talked about ask if there's a better way. I think the fun aspect is something that's overlooked, you know, cause it is like, look, there always be aspects of a career that are, are boring, mundane, frustrating. So how do you get through that? I don't think passion will get you through that. I kind of make the analogy, you know, passion's kind of like willpower. Like it's great to have willpower, you know, so I won't eat this donut, but it's better to have like a system in play. You've had Jocko on, he, he doesn't even respond to my emails. Like this guy, you know, is, is my neighbor here in San Diego. Uh, we have the same birthday, I think the actual birthday, and uh, he, won't he won't respond. But Jocko, if you're listening out there, I want to have you on the show because I want to talk about scientific warfare and how science and, and astronomy in particular has been used in warfare. Well, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, by the way, uh, wrote a book about- I Had a book about yeah. that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and there's, there's aspects that, that I think we could go really deep on. But anyway, he talks about like, you know, discipline, et cetera. But like, there's something that even trumps both of those. And I think it's like, it's, it's a real, it's like God, you know, like my kids won't eat, you know, that delicious, you know, Cuban sandwich that you used to get in, in Florida or whatever, because it has pork in it and we, we keep kosher, right? So if you look at it from that, like there's no system of willpower, like it's not even a temptation. Like I've never gone down and said, hmm, you know, I really like to have that shrimp or, or that oyster. Like it doesn't appeal to me at all. Uh, and, you know, you could say I'm brainwashed or, you know, whatever. I, I don't think that happens to be the case. I think actually putting the system in place so that you don't have to think is actually incredibly discipline, uh, example of incredible discipline. Uh, yeah. So, so, I, so uh, uh, accumulating, s small ways of accumulating energy, whether it's wearing the same outfit every day or mm -hmm. delegating. Decision your, fatigue avoidance. Yeah, yeah you want to avoid this. Um, mm -hmm. Accumulating so I think advantages and energy. I'm writing these down. Yeah, I think I think uh, putting those systems in place um, so that you can be prepared when inspiration does strike. But if you leave, wait for inspiration and curiosity, I think that that our, our passion rather like that is a diminishing resource. That's a resource that that gets used up. It's it's a wasting asset. You know, again, to use the economic analogy, and I think you know the ultimate goal of the book again is is really one to not like teach you like Feynman said a lot of things about the Nobel prize that it's kind of like Einstein. He always talked about religion so ambiguously. You couldn't tell if what he believed that he didn't believe he, some say he did believe, but anyway, you can use their quotes to say anything. But on one occasion, you know, Feynman would say things like, if you can't explain it to your grandmother, then you don't understand it. And then when he won the Nobel Prize, he said, if I could explain to you what I won the Nobel Prize for, it wouldn't be worth a Nobel Prize. <laughs> but on the same token, you have to live in that dichotomy. Again, a Jockoism, right? So the dichotomy well, of well, leadership. I think, and I think, though, the methods might be unexplainable because that's the toolkit that you've spent years building. But yes. you sh but I agree that, the, uh, and in your book, you say, seek elegance. Like, things are often simpler than they seem. Like, don't, you know, you, know, you have to be able to, it's a, it's an important part of accumulating knowledge and wisdom to be able to also teach things in a simple way so that others can understand it. You need to be the giant 
that other people stand on. Your shoulders need to be the shoulders of that giant. And the only way you could do that, the only way you could be a giant in your industry is if you can explain things simply. So that's like a criteria of being a great thinker. Right. And the most elegant way to describe something is to describe it simply. I mean, and I do this, actually, I've done this as a, as a parent for some time, not because I really think like my kids can understand trigonometry at age eight or whatever, but like, what's the first level of acquiring mastery of something? You know, Cialdini spoke about that with you. It's like, you have to learn the lexicon. You have to learn the vocabulary. What are the tools of the trade? Like, if you don't know how a pawn moves, like you're not going to learn, but you can learn basic things. Like you might not know how like some opening is supposed to unfold or some ending game is supposed to unfold as a kid. But like the first step is to understand the lexicon and the vocabulary. So what's the first step of that? And deconstructing those skills is like just hearing the words. So like every night as I put my kids to sleep, I talk about, you know, the uh, uh, Einstein equation. No, no, I don't do that. But I, 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 <laughs> I do talk about like at an early age, just expose your kids to uh to simple things like even i've mentioned in the past and this is like our next side hustle friday has to be the number one problem that i'm trying to solve is like i want to get in on some of that sweet sweet telescope scratch james so every time i'm asked like what's the most simple thing to get my kid interested in stem and science technology engineering and math it's get them a 50 dollars telescope and uh and and just point it at anything besides the sun james this is a doctor right. of astronomy but, speaking very carefully don't point it at the sun don't point it at your neighbor point it at anything in the sky and you will be blown away and you will in fact james not only be able to make a scientific discovery yourself but you'll have the exact same experience emotionally viscerally physically as galileo did in a way completely unlike say the large hadron collider when they discovered the Higgs boson, like you can't buy a Higgs boson, you know, a LHC accelerator and just go to work. And oh, that's how they felt when they discovered Look, it takes years, it takes billions of dollars. But a telescope, James, you will be connected emotionally to Galileo Galilei. And because you'll replicate exactly what he felt. What the hell does the moon have those stupid craters? Oh my God, it's like the earth. It has mountains, it has lava. Right, because here, here's the thing I think a telescope leads naturally to questions. Like you see something in the sky and you ask, what is that? And yes. so, so, and again, it's not just looking at the telescope. Other people invented the telescope, as you know, other people invented the telescope, not Galileo, this guy, Hans Lippershey, and they think some, they even think some guy looked at the moon a day before Galileo in England, but he never wrote it up because he, he was like, whatever. But Galileo improved upon it. He asked questions. He, uh, he used discipline. He used um, a, a, a actual, you know, a systematic approach to discovery that I think is wonderful. So I want to get a telescope company. I've talked to James Quandrell, our friend oh, yeah. James, the other James in my life, uh, I love. And I'm, I'm just but like, how do I get the Keating brand telescope? Because that, that's a great idea. I'm missing out on 50 bucks each Biceps. time. Right? Keating brand Bicep X. Discovery. Yeah. yeah device of <laughs> uh, So, so, but it's interesting though, because you're right. Like that, a telescope is is literally a view into the unknown and yes. and again you're not going to benefit your curiosity is not going to grow if you just look at the telescope and say that's beautiful everything i'm seeing is beautiful yeah your curiosity your curiosity will grow if you say hmm what is that and so you have to discover now what that is or or if you say right hmm, i wish i could see that better and you discover how telescopes work and how you can make it better it doesn't have to be something that's new yeah. to the planet just new to you it's you're practicing yeah. that discovery muscle and again, you get that visceral feel. Like imagine if you could like look at Jupiter and then you were you could actually like feel the temperature of Jupiter. Like you can't do that. But actually with the discovery, which is even more significant than knowing the physical properties, oh, it's made of methane and, and ammonia. No, no, you actually replicate the thrill of discovery as done in the first time in human history. What are those little tiny bright stars next to Jupiter at night after night? 
and then maybe become uh, systematic about it. You get a little notebook. Like I, I still have my 12 year old <clears throat> notebook where I talk about, you know, all the, all the girls that I hope to ask out and uh, et cetera. But I also had in there some sketches of, you know, the Orion Nebula. James, I didn't know it. I was doing exactly what Galileo did. And he was doing, you know, what, he, what just came naturally to him. So, like, maybe the book could have been, you know, think like Galileo. But, but I do feel that there is, you know, the, people make it out to be so hard. Like, I, I, you know, how do I get my kids interested in, in STEM? Or how do I get them to be, like, spend less time on the Internet? And, like, like there's so many just simple answers. But I guess people don't want to hear them. Or maybe they're just scared and intimidated. Maybe perhaps they feel like, well, these kids are going to know more than me and I'll look stupid. And that's another thing, like humility of these laureates. Like one of them told me, I wish I was doing what you're doing. Like in other words, like I wish I was young. I wish I could do like young. I'm not that young. But, but, but. I wish I was so good looking. <laughs> that's right, as you. Uh, so I, I feel like, you know, um, well, it's been it's been an amazing thing for me to learn about. As you know, like we started this, pro I started this project because I wanted to kind of replicate, capture the fire, bottle the magic of think like a billionaire. And yeah. And replicate that and and hopefully go down future roads with you in, in different ways. But you know, I've kind of like um, you know, people are asking me, well, who's the publisher? And and but not really, like they're not like who's the publisher? They're like, how did you get this published? And I'm like, well, you know, I, I have connections with you know James and connected me to, to editors and and so forth. And well, you know, it's all you my did material, a very choose my yourself or skip the line kind of strategy, which is is also a process of discovery. Like it used to be that everyone thought they needed to use a mainstream publisher, but you could ask the question, well, what if I do it a, a better way? Like, or, or is there a better way I to do this? I asked my friend, Stefan Alexander, who I hope is coming on the James Altucher show. He's written two, you know, best-selling books, one called uh, uh, The Jazz of Physics. Uh, and he's a cosmologist at, at Brown University, my alma mater, my oldest friends. And his new book is called Fear of a Black Universe. Oh, and it I, has an I've endorsement. seen that. I saw it on the bookshelf. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully you'll get him on the show. Yeah, I've, I've connected him to Jay, and he's amazing. He's a professional jazz musician, a, a, a sprinter, and he's a cosmologist. And uh, and he wrote, and his, he got a blurb. I got a blurb from you. He got a blurb from Chuck D of Public Enemy. And uh, you know, yeah, because Fear of a Black Planet was their their biggest hit. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and it's not about like oh, you know, being a black. It's not really about that at all. It's more about like setting like hawking, you know, kind of redux with with um, A Brief History of Time. It's now like A Brief History of the Future. But when I look at him, I was talking to him last night because we're just, you know, he's like my oldest friend. And I'm like, Steph, you know, how many more books, like what's your ideal day? And I want to ask you, James, in the last couple of minutes, uh, what's your idea, what does your calendar look like in, in 2025? You know, like, what are you doing? And I asked him like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm writing books and I'm getting up and I'm with my students and maybe hanging out with my bros. And and uh, with my with my woman, and, and I was like, that sounds great. But like, how many books can you write? And he said, I think I got three books left in me. And I said, well, what would it look like? You know, Tim Ferriss is the other person who inspired me to write this book. Like, he asked these questions, like, what would it look like if it was easy? And I'm like, this is kind of easy. Like, I had these brilliant intellects on my show. Yeah, I had to do a lot of research. I had to have them on. I had Jay to engineer it. I had to find, you know, you to inspire me. But But ultimately, you know, like it, it was much easier than my first book, which I got paid below minimum wage to write, you know, uh, from the advance. I got no advance on this book, but I think it's superior because it's timely. It's it's going to be actionable. I want this in the hands of my list of your listeners. That's why I made it ninety nine cents of the electronic for it. I don't I'm not, I don't care about making million. I want to sell millions of copies or not millions, but I, I don't care about being a bestseller. I think that's futile. But I do want it to get into the hands of people, as I wish this book existed when I was. X age, whatever X could be. But I want to ask you, you know, now that there are so many easy ways to do things and to get 
actionable stuff out into the public. Like if you had the coronavirus cure, but you didn't have it until 2035, great. But you know, we needed it in 2021, right? So, or some of us would take it. Uh, but, but anyway, the uh, thing I want to ask you is, yeah, what is your count? What does it look like? What do you want to do? What is still left within you to be unlocked or to be unleashed on the world? Like, what does your calendar look like in 2025? What's, I, what's an I, ideal? Day? I have no idea because uh, I will say that every time I have ever thought what my calendar would be or should be in the coming year, it would it, it ended up being completely different. I always do. I don't like doing what I don't love doing, so I always try to do mm. be as close as possible to do things that don't require the me to manifest the energy of love for it. Like I I should have that. So like for instance, when I started doing stand up comedy, I wanted to write a novel that year. I ended up doing for the next six years comedy. And uh, so I don't know, but uh, I do right yeah. now I am interested in this in in for instance, this this podcast, like we were asking, like, how do these great high achievers how do they think of these amazing new discoveries? How are they curious in the ways they are, like breaking that down? I do think adults, people are at our advanced age can start from scratch in a field and improve and be great and, 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 you know, make serious accomplishments in it. And that, that's what I'm interested in now is finding different, different ways into that, into that question. And, you know, podcasts like this certainly help. Like the, these podcasts are for me and I'm glad that people are listening to them, but I wrote these notes down to, for myself. Yeah. No, I'm glad. I'm so glad. Again, I have to give what we say in Hebrew, the essence of the word uh, Judaism, you know, comes from the Hebrew word gratitude, Yehoda. And I think that's what defines somebody who has a certain, a certain uh, positive relationship and, and with the universe, if you like. And I want to express gratitude to you uh, for inspiring me to write this book. And hopefully we can continue on this journey uh, together in different ways that the audience will find out about. Uh, but now I want to get off because I want to tell you my dirty joke off the air uh, so that I don't sully the minds of any of our listeners. Well, Brian Keating, author of Into the Impossible, think like a Nobel Prize winner. And uh, you interviewed all these Nobel Prize winners and really broke it down. And I challenged the readers to to read this book and tell me some of the DNA of curiosity that you you find in in this in this excellent book. So because I, I want to know. Oh, I should say the subtitle. There's only like two subtitles. It's so the title is Into yeah. the Impossible. Think like a Nobel Prize winner. And the subtitle is Lessons from Laureates to Stoke Curiosity, Spur Collaboration, and Ignite Imagination in Your Life and Career. And with a forward by uh, James, uh, the un, uh, a total imposter in this community, uh, James Altucher, alongside Nobel <laughs> Prize winner Barry Barish. Yeah. Yeah, it's as close as you'll get. Maybe, maybe. But we still have to work on our theory of everything. Well, James, I want to thank you. And I want to offer your listeners to uh, go to my website, uh, briankeating.com. I've got some bonus material. It's basically all there. It's all free. You don't have to buy the book, but we did make it 99 cents so people would get it. And uh, hopefully people can really appreciate it. I'd love to hear from people. Uh, join my mailing list. And uh, otherwise, look forward to many adventures, including a new audiobook, First Time in History, with your former guest, Carlo Ravelli, and yours truly, reading the words of Galileo Galilei in the dialogue. Excellent. I look forward to that. So, all right, Brian, thanks so much. Thank you.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.